This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 28 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, a whole new ball game in the COVID-19 war as South African children return to schools. House prices are set to take a 10 to 20% hit when the market reopens. Africa's low infection rates are no reason for complacency, according to a high-level panel. A nasty lockdown side effect as mental illnesses and addictions are on the rise. And promising developments on the drug front from AstraZeneca and Gilead. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's infection curve continues on a sharply upward trajectory. With 447 new COVID-19 cases reported on Sunday, surpassing the previous peak of 385 set the day before. The country registered eight new coronavirus deaths on Sunday. That takes the total now to 131. South Africa now has 6,783 confirmed cases, almost half of them in the Western Cape, just under a quarter in Gauteng. The rise in cases is mirrored by the increase in testing. Health Minister Dr. Zwilliam Kieze said on Sunday night that just over 7 million citizens had been screened through the community screening program, with 72,000 of them referred for testing. There were 15,000 new tests conducted on Sunday, with a total of now just under a quarter of a million completed. Globally, confirmed COVID-19 cases rose past 3.5 million on Sunday, with deaths just under 250,000. The United States remains the hardest-hit country, with 68,000 deaths registered from 1.2 million cases. With another 315 deaths on Sunday, the UK's toll is now around 28,500, only marginally behind Italy, while Spain and France are the other countries where deaths exceed 20,000. Notably, there were no new mortalities on Sunday in China, South Korea, Japan or Switzerland, countries where the virus had its earliest impact. Some good news on the drugs front with an announcement from Gilead Results from a global trial by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases showed that patients with COVID-19 who received remdesivir recovered faster than those who were given a placebo. Gilead's chairman, Daniel O'Day, said remdesivir is the result of more than a decade of research, experimentation and iteration by the company's scientists. He said in recent years... Gilead scientists have been studying remdesivir's impact on viruses such as Ebola and other coronaviruses such as SARS and MERS. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Rodden Whelan is the Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health. Good to be talking with you again, Ron. You're really keeping us up to date with all these 
the details of what's going on. And the latest now is the schools. When do they open? How do they open? Who goes back? What does it mean uh, for the uh, spread of the virus, etc.? But maybe let's just start at the very beginning. When do South African children go back to school? Well, it looks like, um, Alec, yeah, it looks like we're going to yeah, start on the 1st of June you know, from well, all of the reports that are coming out here last week. Obviously, teachers will go, begin to go back now in May and begin to uh, prepare uh, for a June start. Um, from June onwards, uh, it will be a staggered start, starting with uh, grade 7s and grade 12s, and then it will roll over the yeah, it looks like it's probably going to be uh, six, six to eight weeks at the very least, which would imply June and July you know, phased, uh, phased back to school. Um, yeah, I think yeah, the priorities are primarily people, you know, scholars who, who've you know, got exams coming up, um, uh, hence yeah, the grade 12s are yeah, starting a little bit earlier. And there'll obviously be yeah, some yeah, pretty dramatic reconfiguration of the holiday calendars going forward. Um, yeah, it, it looks like uh, there'll be much, much uh, shorter breaks, and it looks like there'll definitely be you know, an extension of the school year into you know, December. The big question here is that private schools and public schools have got different schedules or different holidays. Are they going to have to just work it out? Yeah, it certainly looks that way, Alec. Uh, every school calendar runs on number of learning days per year. And, uh, you know, both the public and the private schools are working on, uh, recouping the learning days lost as a result of the, the lockdowns. Um, it's a tricky uh, equation to run in that a lot of schools, and uh, in particular in the private space, are running uh, homeschooling programs. Um, you know, my kids here, for instance, are, you know, in homeschooling before their April break and are now go, going back to school as of uh, Tuesday. So the, the, the school schedule starts again on Tuesday. There's a deliberate homeschooling program. It's quite interesting to watch. Everyone is running off Google Classroom and Microsoft Teams and Zoom meetings and, and so on and so, so forth. Um, but that's not sustainable for South Africa. We need to get kids back into uh, school. Um, it's uh, you know, imperative for the economy. It's imperative for our our kids' development, you know, both uh, their academic development as well as you know, their so- social social development. And you know, the reality is um, not all kids have access to computers and hardware and uh, connectivity at, uh, at home. Um, and you know, even if you do have internet connectivity and hardware, you know, there's, often more than, there's often more than one kid per family. And uh, there's often not more than one computer per, per family. So there are real barriers and constraints for you know, homeschooling in the, in the long term in South Africa. So there are lots of challenges associated with it. But from the medical perspective, what about that challenge? So far, the idea has been keep everybody in lockdown. Now, if the children go back to school, we know how viruses and uh, flus and uh, that kind of thing spread quickly amongst children back into their homes? Yeah, it's a great question, Alec. Um, uh, this has probably been one of the hardest things for us to manage as a country going forward. There are three competing priorities. Here. As I mentioned, you know, the first priority is um, a learning and, and social interaction priority, and that's obvious that kids you know, need to learn. I think the second priority is that uh, a health and safety priority or public health uh, priority. I'll come back to that in a little bit and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the third priority that uh, we're also facing at Discovery and many other businesses across South Africa is this is an economic priority in that uh, kids, uh, schools take care of kids during the day. And you know, given uh, 
in many instances, you know, both parents work or you, know, you end up with single parent families. Schools play an important part in the economy. And if you're not, if you don't have schools open, it's hard for parents to get back to work. And this is one of the reasons that Denmark and Germany um, and other places across the world have actually pushed for schools to open a lot, a lot earlier. So these are three important uh, you know, priorities, the learning priority, the um, the health priority and the economic priority. Looping back into the health your priority, as you mentioned, Alec, um, schools are a, a, a big uh, public health uh, risk. Uh, and you mentioned this uh, previously. And if you look at you know, the R0, schools are one of the, the big drivers of the R0, you know, the replicability of uh, viruses. So one of the first things you tend to shut down in any uh, infectious uh, your outbreak or epidemic or schools you know, for that exact reason and that uh, there's high transmiss- transmissibility of uh, you know, the, the virus. Um, I think you know, the fortunate thing where we, we do have at schools in terms of their COVID um, is that COVID has a much uh, uh, less complex effect on, on kids. And certainly we're seeing much less severe infections in kids and much less severe complications in, in kids. In fact, most kids end up uh, with uh, uncomplicated uh, COVID infections and in many instances are asymptomatic infections. So that's the really good news around uh, you know, COVID. That's not to say that kids don't get infected, number one. So kids definitely get infected by COVID. In a recent paper by The Lancet last week, you clearly demonstrated this. What they did was they looked at viral loads across the different age categories and populations, and they found that the viral loads across kids was exactly the same as you know, the viral load distribution across you know, adults. The reality is kids just respond differently uh, to, to COVID. Um, it's also not to say that uh, there isn't a, a chance that you, know, you end up with some a complicated and severe infection in, in, in a child. Yeah, so there are some you know, worrying reports coming out of London in particular where uh, you know, some children have picked up you know, more, more severe infections. But broadly speaking, on a population basis, um, across most kids are asymptomatic um, and you know, carry relatively you know, mild infections. So that's, that, you know, that's the, the, the good news here. Well, bad news is they can spread it, and so no more visits to granny and grandpa, but their own parents might not be without risk. Yeah, look, I think we're moving into a phase where we'll manage COVID as you know, family clusters. And you know, what that means is and we're seeing you know, some interesting you know, movement out of China in particular. You know, China is you know, teaching us a lot of lessons in you know, managing COVID and particularly getting kids back to school. What happens in China is the entire family screens every day. So the entire family takes a screening survey every day, mom, dad, all of the kids in the family, and they submit that screening survey to the school if, as a, a certificate, if, a wellness certificate, if, if you will, and that gets, gets recorded. So if there is any COVID-type symptom across any given your family unit, they would advise that uh, child to rather stay at home. Um, and certainly if uh, a child is ill, uh, all of the standard COVID symptoms that we've spoken about several times now, fever, cough, sore throat, any diarrheal or abdominal symptomatology, 
they would rather have that uh, you know, child, child stay at home. So that's the first uh, mechanism is a family unit screening uh, for children to go back to school. How do they actually screen in China and can we do it in South Africa? Yeah, so the screening you know, includes two components. You know, the first component is a standard questionnaire on symptom screening, screening and that's a self-reported uh, answers to questions uh, around do you have any uh, COVID symptoms. The second part of screening is um, temperature monitoring. And what what you're seeing across uh, China, and we will see this across South Africa, and we, we, we've, we've certainly implemented this across our businesses in South Africa now, is temperature monitoring as soon as someone comes into a school a school environment. So that will just become standard you know, practice now. All children's uh, temperature will be you know, screened when they, they, they're coming into school. As we mentioned uh, last week, if temperatures are raised, they will then be transferred uh, with, you know, either home or into a medic, uh, yeah, medical room for further you know, checks and checks around um, you know, COVID symptomatology or signs. Would they have to go to school presumably with masks as well? Yeah, I think it's common cause uh, that masks are going to be required. Um, and certainly in inside environments, masks will, will be mandatory. Um, no, no doubt about that. That's a national priority now, not only a, not only a school priority. Um, I think what we will also see is some level of yeah, social distancing in, in classrooms, wherever that is possible. So we'll definitely be pushing for yeah, social distancing. What we are seeing in some other markets is we are seeing staggered starting times for schools. So certain uh, you know, classes you know, come back earlier, certain classes come back later. So there's a staggered starting time across yeah, the, the, yeah, the beginning of the day. Um, we're seeing in some other markets some interesting yeah, barrier protection. So perspex screens, yeah, for example, um, around desks, uh, yeah, particularly in, in, in China. Uh, and I think we're going to see all of these things begin to play out across yeah, schools in, schools in South Africa over the next year, f- uh, few months. Uh, I must say, I've been very impressed by, um, the, the questions schools have been asking us and, uh, the, the ideas that have come out of schools over the last uh, three or four weeks have been very, very impressive. So I'm encouraged by the, the progress schools have already made in preparing for, for returning uh, in a very safe and, and responsible manner. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You, you mentioned earlier that part of the responsibility now is going to be on the family unit. But if you've got a kid who hasn't got access to the Internet, they've already lost quite a lot of schooling, and they might be just a little bit edgy, you could be inclined to say, well, go off to school because mom and dad have to get to work. So there's going to be a lot of responsibility on the on the family unit. Yeah, as with all of us, we've all got to play our role in uh, flattening this curve. And um, yeah, we've, we're trying to flatten the curve on a national level. We're trying to flatten the curve across our businesses. And now we're trying to flatten the curve across our schools and our, our communities. So we all play an important role in this and we all need to be responsible um, you know, for the health and well-being of our, uh, our communities. Probably the trickier thing is, in schools that we'll, we'll need to manage when we start, and I would urge all schools to be prepared for this, is that there will be instances where infections pop up. There is you know, no doubt that at some point in time, you know, once you reopen again, you will end up with a, a COVID case. And you know, hopefully that is a very isolated case that you're able to contain you know, very quickly. But there is a chance you will end up with a cluster of you know, cases. Uh, so I think the, the one thing I would caution uh, schools and you know, the leaders of schools is to both prevent, uh, prepare on the preventive front. So all of the screening, the temperature monitoring, the masks, the barrier protections, 
but also recognize that, that while those barriers are good, they're not impenetrable. And there is a good chance uh, schools will end up with their clusters of infections. What you've uh, got to be prepared for there is quick isolation and quarantine, a quick mechanism around your contact, contact tracing. This is uh, something we've worked hard at uh, Discovery to put in place. We have a dedicated COVID-19 clinical response team who's ready to respond to any potential outbreak across um, the, the Discovery offices. And we're able to move very quickly if anything uh, comes about. And I would urge schools to you know, contemplate something something similar, similar to that. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. If you look at the industries that are under pressure, we know newspapers are having a rough time of it, airlines, tourism. But one that doesn't immediately come to mind is the real estate industry, or in particular, people who facilitate the buying and selling of houses. And Brian Beeler is the managing director of Hazermark, uh, an industry that I guess, Brian, you must be feeling pretty much uh, like many of the other worse affected industries are concerned. In this country, houses are sold through show days. Agents have to get out there, go and talk with um, with buyers and sellers. But maybe it's not all that bad. What, what's actually going on in your sector? Well, um, Eric, thanks for having me. The, the real estate industry basically came to a standstill. On the 26th of March, we all went into lockdown with everybody else. Um, and the challenge has been, obviously, that no buyers could be taken to houses and uh, sellers couldn't actually sell the houses. So the industry just went into a freeze frame. Um, as an industry, what we've tried to do is to try to work digitally and do as many things as we can electronically, um, trying to still stay in touch and keep the relationship with all the clients. Um, we have done a few interesting technological advancements. Um, and I think that from an industry point of view, Nothing will ever be the same again as that prior to lockdown. Uh, so post-lockdown, we're going to have a new way of thinking, a new way of acting. And How many agents are there when you say it's, it's freezed? So how many people's uh, incomes have been frozen? With the, in, as actual agents, it's probably about 50,000. But along the value chain, there's hundreds of thousands, as in you, you talk about bond originators, conveyances, uh, removal companies, electricians, plumbers, everybody does a certification. So the impact is uh, economically is huge. Uh, we're also a fairly big contributor to GDP, uh, and that all adds up at the end of the day. When you, you, you just look at it in a broader perspective, the, what about the deeds office? Because presumably you get a buyer and a seller together, and we'll, we'll go into more detail on how you're trying to overcome the, the issues of, of physicality. But is the deeds office at least open? Do they are they processing transactions? No, unfortunately, the, the deeds office is closed, like everybody else. But all the transactions in the deeds office um, have now been essentially been rejected because their rates clearance certificates have expired. So your rates clearance certificate goes hand in hand with your transfer documents, uh, and those expiry dates would have occurred during the lockdown period which means that either one has to reapply for a new rates clearance certificate at huge cost, or, uh, as we've called for, is to perhaps as an industry ask for an extension of the deadlines to add five weeks to those uh, expiry dates to allow for the continuation 
as they try and catch up with the backlog of all those outstanding deeds. What it does do is it leaves all those buyers and sellers up in limbo, uh, pending some sort of conclusion or registration eventually. So yeah, it's been a yeah, tough time that you guys are having at the moment. What are you doing to overcome it? Because surely some people still move. Well, maybe they're not moving that often, but they're wanting to go overseas. They're wanting to sell their house. They are forced sellers, people who want to put money into their businesses, perhaps that are in their homes. There must be some people who Look, people want to transfer. What we have done is that we have done a whole lot of, there's been a whole lot of digital advancements, electronics advancements in the industry. So there are still people uh, buying houses, um, and the way they're buying them now is to, if they have either seen the property previously, or they've spoken to the agent, the agent sent them information, or they've perhaps done a virtual show day, perhaps where the uh, agent gets hold of the seller via a WhatsApp call, patches in the buyer, and then the agent would talk to the seller through where to point the, the, the cell phone camera, and the buyer can get a sense of what um, the property is all about. At that stage, or you know, post that phone call, the agent and the buyer will have a chat. And if the buyer is keen to get a commitment or make a commitment, they would sign an offer to purchase, subject to uh, a viewing within 10 days after lockdown has been lifted. So essentially, what that means is that. A contract comes into place, but it's suspensive on that viewing. And that viewing will eventually become a due diligence where the buyer will not only view the property, but also compare the property and evaluate the property in comparison to the property disclosure document, which is a list of defects and condition of the property. So right up until that time, it is essentially an option for the both the buyer um, and, and the seller to a large degree. Because until um, the finals or suspensive conditions are, are fulfilled, the seller is entitled to continue marketing. So, there's so some until, yeah, until that happens, until the lockdown is over, you just can't transact. We just can't transact at the moment, no. We can do a few listings. Again, the same thing where the sellers take the photographs and we uh, can compile them into a brochure and to a, Portal listing. So yes, we can do bits and pieces, but it's very removed because it's a very people-oriented business. So what's going to happen afterwards? You, it, it is certainly when when we were in the market to purchase a home, we went to different places with our agent. We went into people's homes, obviously, to see them. But with the low-touch economy that that we're going into, where everyone's scared of of picking up a coronavirus or, or some other nastiness, that might have to change. Do you think the whole industry will be different when we when we go look ahead? Absolutely. I think the industry is going to be very different. The agents are going to have to de- develop new skill sets. They're going to have to be able to verify the buyer properly, not just from a willingness to be able to buy, but also that they're able to buy, so they're going to be financially pre-qualified. The sellers are going to be more cautious about who they allow into their property. Um, I think they might be a bit reluctant with all the uh, implications and the virus uh, concerns more than anything else. So social distancing will definitely become a thing of the future. Um, and I think a lot more will be done electronically until only the necessities have to be done face-to-face. Um, 
So yeah, for, from that point of view, I think it's going to be a, a lot more, a slightly more skilled agent out there who's going to have to really work uh, to verify all the parties to make sure that they are serious about selling, first of all, and because I think there'll be pressure on prices. Uh, you know, it's a, the law of supply and demand, and I think there'll be a lot more properties on the market and a lot less proper, a lot less buyers out there wanting to jump in and commit based on the economic situation. Well, we so, do know that. We know that the economy is, is projected to contract this year. It's just a matter of how big. With property prices following economic uh, performance, how how significant a decline in prices are you anticipating? We're anticipating to be realistic. You're probably looking at anything from 10 to 20 percent reduction in pricing, as was pre-COVID-19. Uh, the, the demand is going to it'll be very tempered based on the, the career or the industry or the job that the buyer has. But anybody in uh, entertainment, tourism, is going to battle to you have the backing of the banks from a bond perspective. And then it's literally going to be, I think there'll be a change in lifestyle, so people will be looking at a minimalistic approach, and less is more. So there'll be more demand for complex-type living, high-density-type living, secure estates. Um, certainly those will be the, the prime properties going forward. Extraordinary changes that we've seen across our lives and in, in certain industries. But what are you doing as a sector, as a, as a property real estate sector to try and reopen? We have made a submission firstly on, on behalf of Raboza, which is the real estate business owners of South Africa, and then also uh, National Property Practitioners Council, which is all the agents in this country. Um, we made a submission, which unfortunately we didn't get a response to it. We haven't had a timeless response. Uh, we will make sure that we try and do another submission. Um, our engagements, you know, we are very cognizant of the fact of the concerns of the virus and we'll take all the necessary precautions and issue protocols in which to operate safely and with, to prevent any of the, the spread or likelihood of any spread of uh, coronavirus. Have you seen what's happened in other parts of the world? Is there anything that we can learn from there? In other parts of the world, surprisingly, real estate has come in at sort of a level four, um, which is at, at this sort of level, and not at the level two where we already we are currently positioned. So our submission would be to up our level and to be able to operate now as are the financial institutions um, and the attorneys. So you want everybody in the value chain to be able to participate and to take a necessary precaution and prevent the risk of the virus spreading. So but I we, guess it's you need to have the deeds office back on stream before any of that can make any sense. The deeds office is meant to be opening tomorrow, but unfortunately I've had a notification that is not actually opening tomorrow but will be imminent over the next couple of days. Um, and we, we still need to get clarity on whether it's open to the public or they're going to be dealing with their backlog. But we do need the, that at least to start happening so that some income can start flowing through uh, the system and those buyers and sellers can actually move on. There are a hell of a lot of buyers and sellers who actually need to move and are now a month or two in arrears of having to have to move. 
So to try and figure that all out, it's going to be a huge pressure point on removal companies eventually and to get the balance right. Brian, when we started this interview, you said there are 50,000 estate agents in South Africa. Do you think there are going to be 50,000 estate agents in a few years' time, or are, are they also going to be, or are there also going to be casualties? I think the real estate industry is going to take a, a very big uh, knock in terms of casualties. And again, you know, we, we're expecting perhaps 30% of the industry to fall by the wayside. They literally cannot carry themselves financially during this uh, lockdown period. They've got rents, salaries to pay. They just can't do it. So, um, unfortunately, the economy has been in a recession already. So, to put more pressure on to a real estate agency is going to be a lot of, a lot to ask. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In Africa, infection rates of COVID-19 still remain relatively low compared to the rest of the world. This is despite earlier warnings that the outbreak will be extremely devastating for the continent. The low infection and fatality rates have prompted researchers to look at the factors that could make Africans more resilient, including the median age of Africans, which is much lower than Europeans, the warmer temperatures that could play a role, and the possibility that the prevalence of tuberculosis and the BCG vaccine could conceivably make patients more resistant because of previously triggered immune responses. At a World Economic Forum briefing convened to share experiences between African countries, the World Health Organization's Dr. Machidiso Moeti said South Africa and Ghana were leading the field with best practices to deal with the COVID-19 outbreak. In, in terms of the situation in Africa, we are continuing to see an increase in cases. I, I think our, our outbreak is uh, continuing. Um, we have now uh, confirmed 23,800 and so cases and 933 deaths in the region and then in the continent, um, including North Africa, 34,610 cases. Um, we are seeing... Um, case fatality rate in the region of about 3.9%. We have a couple of countries that have a higher case fatality rate. What is very encouraging, and I'd just like to emphasize this, is that we have a number of countries that have reported zero cases over a couple of weeks. So these are admittedly relatively small countries, Namibia, Mauritania, and Seychelles. But they put in place as well some measures, early measures, starting with testing, contact tracing, which have produced some results. And then we are very concerned about West Africa, where we are seeing community spread in a significant number of countries compared to others. We are working with the UN in West Africa, particularly to see how to support that. And then to conclude on the matter that we were discussing today, these are not easy decisions at the political and policy level to make. There is always a need to balance. And we have heard in the conversations, not only in Africa, but in Western countries worldwide, that deciding to put in place these measures, deciding when and how to lift these measures is extremely challenging. There is always a need to balance. We encourage very much the use of data so that when a government decides not to lock down a city, they need to be aware that there will be consequences in terms of the spread of the virus. And we hope that these decisions are made having taken into account overall the balance between enabling um, economies to continue to grow and stopping the spread of a pandemic that can have profound long-term impact on the economy. So this is how I'd like to conclude, recognizing those challenges in making tough decisions 
South Africa's Minister of Health, Zueli Mkhize, however, cautioned against drawing conclusions about Africa at this stage. He said the continent may be later in the development of the disease. Mkhize said that South Africa was concerned about its metropolitan areas and explained how South Africa went about in containing the pandemic. A massive testing program has netted about 195,000 tests on individuals, uh, of which the 5,000 are the ones who are positive. This gives us roughly uh, something of about uh, 3% uh, positive rate, and we actually uh, have to test about 40 people to get uh, to the positive patients, uh, to the positive case. That means to us we have to target a bit more on, on the on the case of uh, so that you can find uh, more uh, uh, more targeted uh, um, uh, positive cases, we put out a lockdown, which basically is what has assisted quite a bit. The first five weeks has actually been proven to have assisted to deflect the uh, expo- exponential rise in the curve and uh, deflect it to flatten a little bit. And in so saying, we are actually seeing a slightly different trajectory. Let us push the peak of um, to of uh, the epidemic to uh, around September at the, in the best case scenario, or maybe July in the worst case scenario. And this is going to be related to how we ease off the lockdown, so that uh, <clears throat> the president has called for a risk-adjusted easing of the lockdown to take into account the food security issues, to take into account the uh, economic. Uh, recovery that needs to be, uh, you know, supported. All of this together, we're now working on the plans where we've actually looked at the country and we've broken it down into five stages of alertness, which means the, where there is a, where we are now, where there's a lockdown is stage five, where there's high transmission, very low level of preparedness. We're moving to a stage one where there's a high level of uh, preparedness and low risk of infection. And we're going to be demarcating all the the district to work out which one is, is suitable. So all of this together means to us that uh, we have gained a bit of time, but I think our message has been important to ensure that there's good information to the citizens, to ensure that there's one message for everyone, and that uh, scientific um, research guides the response. It must be multidisciplinary, led by the leadership of the country, and that way we believe that we can make an impact Obviously, the winter, winter months are coming, but we are really hopeful that uh, it, we have averted the first storm. But of course, there's still uh, a lot of uh, 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 time to go to see to what extent we're able to manage. Dr. Mkhizi did not want to indicate what the worst case scenario for South Africa could be in the coronavirus pandemic. And he also commented on the participation of the private sector in containment measures and said it could lead to a better understanding for a need for a national health insurance in the country. Well, we, we have not uh, publicized any forecast of deaths as such. We've just uh, issued a general uh, awareness that if we don't manage to reduce the numbers of cases, that the death uh, toll might increase, and therefore we will go on to make preparations for that. We uh, have a number of uh, focus groups that are working on this matter, and in the process you realize that their figures are varied, so we've avoided uh, publishing figures because uh, they can also be misused for sensational uh, purposes, and so 
we don't have a figure that we are specifically working on, but we keep improving our focus model as we improve uh, the data coming from our uh, test sites. So we will only be certain that any focus is correct when the numbers uh, that we have fed in have actually been in place for a while and we uh, observe the changing uh, pattern of the epidemic. We actually believe that the numbers are, uh, that are going to be coming in in the beginning of winter when the co-infection with influenza viruses is going to give us a better sense as to whether we are going to look at a much more pessimistic scenario where there will be much more rapid rise in the numbers of people who are infected and therefore demising, or it's going to be possible to manage it until we can get the peak later on in September. So we are going to be preparing for any eventuality, but we are avoiding uh, issuing numbers out because in the, if you looked at the first focus, we would have actually been at a much higher level, but the interventions did change the course. So we believe that whatever focus may be, we must work for the best scenario possible, even though we've got a sense of uh, how bad things can be. We have actually all agreed that to face the COVID outbreak, we need to face it as South Africa as a health sector, which means we don't make a distinction between private and public. So already, for example, the first few cases that came through were actually diagnosed by private uh, sector. They were admitted in the private hospitals, and the testing also happened initially in the public sector, later in the private sector. So there is a huge collaboration with the laboratories. At any one time, if there's any backlog uh, in any one of the laboratories, the government can step in and take over the specimens, do the tests, and make sure that there's no backlog aside. We can put a message at any one time and talk to all the CEOs and correct whatever problems between the laboratories. In the private sector, we have actually sat down, compared the numbers of bed. We are agreeing that we are going to share the burden, and at the moment we are negotiating the terms of engagement so that where there's uh, facilities in the private sector, we'll use them and there's no problem. We're now looking at the discussion with the uh, general practitioners to see that now that uh, uh, there's going to be a need for us to focus on community health. <clears throat> Can we actually start engaging the general practitioners? So I think the uh, COVID-19 will make the collaboration much closer between public and private. As to the attitudes for the universal health coverage, I think it's something that we have still to work on. I believe that a lot more uh, would have been achieved when we get out of the COVID-19 outbreak response uh, than we have been before. But it does require still a lot of engagement because the interest uh, in the uh, public and private sector can never be aligned completely. But if we can actually find a mechanism where we can coexist in a model that allows us to be able to settle each other's concerns, we will actually be much closer to the universal health coverage. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. It's hello to Samu Kelesiwe Mtembu, or I guess your friends call you Sam, a clinical psychologist in KZN in, uh, in Durban at an organization called Choose Life Specialist Recovery Center. Part of the Inside COVID focus that we've had recently is on mm. the mental stresses that this is bringing. Uh, has the COVID-19 crisis made it any worse? Yes, definitely. I think the fact that people are now in more confined spaces and movements have been limited. The mental illnesses are exacerbated and we've had a lot of patients or clients come in recently because 
a lot of things have been almost highlighted during this time when they've spent time with their family members or in a confined space. So, yeah, it's only brought out uh, mental illnesses even more or any addictions even more. So if you have been stressed or some anxiety, etc., has this crisis added to it? Mm, definitely. Because if you can imagine, if you're someone that suffers with anxiety and if you learned how to self-medicate yourself, whether if it's a few glasses of wine that turn into drinking the whole bottle or whatever it, it may be, the COVID, because of the, the way that it affects people's jobs, it affects people's um, income, um, it affects, you know, the, the progression in life if one is studying or if one is trying to make something of themselves and continue with life and all of a sudden that came to quite a sudden halt. If it was, I can say, kind of phased in more and people could actually learn to adjust in each different level, then it would be something different. But the fact that it was sprung up upon people is then you have to dig into your tool bag of, of coping mechanisms. And if you really don't have that many healthy coping mechanisms and you're suffering from a mental disorder or addiction, it, it, it is expected to make it much worse, yes. When you say addictions, are people turning to addiction as a coping mechanism? Mm. Definitely. So what tends to happen is if you have a mental illness, especially if it's undiagnosed, in a way, your mental, in your mental capacity, you have an ability to sense something is not right. And in sensing that something is not right, you then reach for what is comfortable or what makes you feel comfort. And substances do generally tend to have a blanket over any kind of uh, anxiety or depression that you have. But because of the nature of substances where it's short reacting, where it's dealing with symptoms um, on the surface, but it doesn't really deal with the core of the problem, it then develops into an addiction where you have to take more and then you develop a tolerance and then it just um, snowballs into something that is uncontrolled. Is there any healthy way of self-medicating against the stress rather than drinking too much or um, maybe mm. taking some other addictive substances? Um, so uh, prescribed medicine um, from a professional psychiatrist and therapy, the kind of uh, space that allows you to come into um, a place where you can learn to deal with those those core problems. So let's say, for example, if someone is dealing with stress at work or they're having difficulty with an abusive partner or they're having trouble with their children at home or if it's work stresses. The facing of the problems in a way where you're dealing with a professional that can help you find the tools that you actually do have within yourself to deal with whatever problems you're presented with actually assists in you finding healthy self-medication or medication or coping mechanisms, whether for that be balancing the chemical imbalances that have come from mood or the anxiety that someone could be suffering from, or just learning how to deal with setting boundaries and a way of speaking to your family members and a way of speaking to your boss or self-talk, speaking to yourself to try and counter the, the negative the coping mechanisms or criticizing yourself or making the situation worse in a sense, actually it, it helps quite a lot. What experts actually try to, especially psychology, what it tries to do is it enhances the, the good coping mechanisms that you have already within yourself 
that might have been sidelined by the negative coping mechanisms and basically teach you how to deal with your problem on your own and learn how to identify when you have lost control or when you are digging into the negativity to try and alleviate your anxiety or your press mood or being addicted to a certain substance. There is no known cure or vaccine that can be used against COVID-19 at the moment. In the past week, there has however been promising developments when AstraZeneca announced that it would be pushing ahead with the production of the vaccine that the Jenner Institute of Oxford University is producing. And Galead, the developer of Rendisivir, a drug that has been developed for the Ebola virus, showed promise during trials in the United States. In this report, published with permission from NBC, the chief executive officer of AstraZeneca, Pascal Soriot, tells Richard Engel that the vaccine will be made available during the pandemic at cost price. In a major show of confidence, one of the world's top drug companies, AstraZeneca, today announced it's pushing ahead to produce millions of doses of a trial coronavirus vaccine, even before the research is complete. Our goal is to have a vaccine that uh, can be available to the public on an emergency use basis by the end of the year. And how many of these emergency vaccines do you want to have ready by the end of the year? At this stage, we we have a goal to produce up to 100 million doses by the end of the year and then scale up from there and, and, and go beyond this next year. The company is betting big, making the vaccine developed by the UK's Oxford University, which last week began human trials. So far, the vaccine has proven effective in monkeys. The researchers say they'll have test results this summer. AstraZeneca isn't waiting until then, but says it's starting mass production immediately. Why this vaccine? The technology is well uh, demonstrated, validated already because they've used it to produce other vaccines. They started very early, they started back in January, so they're well advanced and that vaccine is in the lead. And so therefore we felt this is the one vaccine that we can help accelerate and globalize. We asked the CEO how much it would cost. He said during the pandemic they would sell it at cost. He estimated a few dollars a dose. Although remdesivir failed in the first human trials in China, in a subsequent study in the United States, it was proved that COVID-19 patients did improve when they were given doses of the drug. This has prompted the American Food and Drug Administration to approve remdesivir for the treatment of coronavirus patients. In a White House briefing, Dan O'Day, the CEO of Gilead, told President Trump that it was an important breakthrough for hospitalized patients. We feel a tremendous responsibility. We're humbled by this being an important first step for patients, for hospitalized patients. We want to make sure nothing gets in the way of these patients getting the medicine. So we made a decision to donate about 1.5 million vials of remdesivir. We'll be working with the government to determine how best to uh, uh, distribute that uh, within the United States. We'll be working very closely to get that to patients, working with uh, FEMA, working with other parts of the government to make sure that we get that to the patients in need as quickly as possible because there are patients out there that can benefit from this medicine today that are hospitalized and we don't want any time to waste for that. And we're also fully committed to continuing to expand the supply of this medicine. We started investing in this 
back in January as soon as we became aware of the coronavirus. Uh, this is a, a long time to manufacture. It used to be 12 months. It's now six months. Our scientists have brought that down. And so as we get into the second half of this year, we're able to have many more supplies available to patients, and we're fully committed to working, Mr. President, with you, your administration, to make sure that patients in need can get this important new medicine. A member of the U.S. coronavirus task team, Dr. Anthony Fauci, however, said, although remdesivir was promising, he would not regard it as a knockout. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important for a number of reasons, and I'll give you the data. It's highly significant. If you look at the time to recovery being shorter in the remdesivir arm, it was 11 days compared to 15 days. And that's a p-value for the scientists who are listening of zero. 0.001. Although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. The mortality rate trended towards being better in the sense of less deaths in the remdesivir group. 8% versus 11% in the placebo group. It has not yet reached statistical significance, but the data needs to be further analyzed. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation to immediately let the people who are in the placebo group know so that they could have access. And all of the other trials that are taking place now have a new standard of care. So we would have normally waited several days until the data gets further dot the I and cross the T, but the data are not going to change. Some of the numbers may change a little, but the, but the conclusion will not change. This drug happens to be blocking a enzyme that the virus uses, and that's an RNA polymerase, but there are a lot of other enzymes that the virus uses that are now going to be targets for this. This will be the standard of care, and in fact, when we look at the other trials we're doing, we were going to do trial with another uh, uh, antiviral. Actually, it isn't an antiviral, it's an anti-inflammatory, uh, a monoclonal antibody. We're going to now compare the combination of remdesivir with this. So as drugs come in, we're going to see if we could add on that. Well, I think it's a beginning. I thought Tony explained it really well. It's a beginning. It means you build on it. I love that as a building block, you know, just as a building block. I love that. But uh, certainly it's a, it's a positive, it's a very positive event. This has been episode 28 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.